0: Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Radiotherapy's Facebook page. It's myself, Panel Beater, in the studio with my esteemed colleagues, Dr. Dilemma and Dr. Neo Good morning to you both. Good morning. Good morning. And on Skype, we've got Dr Sharma, who, <laughs> who magically appeared, pun intended. How are you, Dr Sharma?
1: Uh, great to be here virtually uh, for a change. It's usually you know, uh, Doctor Neo who's uh, who's the, the regional correspondent. No, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm reporting from the uh, from the, the well-known country town of Sydney. Uh, so yes, yes yeah. glad yeah. to join you.
0: It's great they've got electricity on up there now. <laughs> <laughs> Are you you're gigging up there, or is, there, is this work or pleasure?
1: Um, uh, mo- mostly work. Uh, mm-hmm. so it, I was giving a talk to an organization about health and well-being you know trying to do your bit of uh, uh, off spreading the message of, of health <laughs> not just to one patient at a time but cohorts of hundreds at a time a bit more efficient
0: brilliant brilliant dr neo good morning good morning how are you doing I'm well I'm well you've joined us from Ballarat? I
2: have I've just uh, I've just popped down um, and you know in that I've, uh, I've been it's been very interesting being back in the uh, the rural senses. It's 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 quite invigorating, really. <laughs> invigorating. Have you gone
3: to Sovereign Hill?
2: I haven't. Um, oh. I haven't had the pleasure yet. You know, I've, I I used to be a quite a frequenter of uh, Sovereign Hill <laughs> back when I was up there during my university panning days, panning for some gold, panning for some yeah. gold, uh, hoping to hit the bi- hit the big nuggets and, and finally quit medicine.
0: <laughs> I haven't been there for ages, but it just occurs to me. I think they've got a uh, you know how they, it's obviously a um, set up like a uh, ye oldie times mm. uh, village. They have a a clinic there, don't they? Like an old hospital clinic, oh, maybe. Or, de- or is it a dentist? Maybe they've got a dentist. Well, I could ch- I could change Nineteenth century dentist. I it. I could
2: pull out some some uh, some old teeth with uh, some rusty pliers.
0: Imagine being a dentist back in the gold imagine rush. Being a imagine being a patient. <laughs> when we weren't, weren't dentists the first surgeons? It's not well, the no, story no, was, with the red. It was barbers. Barbers.
2: Yeah. Barbers
0: were the first surgeons with the uh, the red spinning pole. That's it. Red Yeah, white. yeah. yeah, yeah. Doctor Dilemma, you've been on nights.
3: Uh, yes, yeah. I'm on night shift, but I'm just looking down at my hands. I'm covered in um, paint from uh, come from one of those um, t- paint and sip events um, last what night what are you
0: doing to patients these days oh, no, no. Ho- hopefully not pre nights <laughs> this, <is> tot-
3: un- <laughs> this is unrelated not pre-night no i had a bit of a, um, a hen's party yesterday and we went for one of those paint and sip you know the you paint uh recreate a painting that i did not do it justice in my in my really? interpretation and they you know top you up with wine and it's good fun yeah so, but sounds I, like you're I, working hard yeah, yeah i'm working hard on my um <laughs> on my artistic flair which is um which
2: is
0: not something to brag about. <laughs> I've my health and well-being story since we last spoke was pick, trying to get my hip sorted. Do you remember the dilemma? It's still uh, still bothering you, is it? It is so sore. It so is so painful. It's really just uh, your gift to the patient community. You know, you're, you're getting a little bit of insight. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's. I've learned a lot. Uh, in the last month, I'm not a regular goer to um, the medical profession mm. as it turns out. Um, and um, I've learned a, lo- <laughs> a lot over the last month. It's been very interesting. Um, but that's me. Hey. It's um, a bit topical, Dr Neo, that you might want to tell us a little bit about what you're observing with um, thunderstorm asthma.
2: Yeah, it's pollen season, Um, as I'm sure many of our listeners are aware with their runny noses and itchy eyes. Um, But I just wanted to uh, kind of flag that we are experiencing a bit of a thunderstorm asthma uh, like conditions at the moment. And I've actually seen a few patients um, recently with some thunderstorm asthma and it can be quite quite dramatic, you know. So thunderstorm asthma is something that we've picked up, particularly over the past couple of years with that notable experience a couple of years ago where there was a very severe um, and deadly presentation of thunderstorm asthma. And it's basically where the, the weather conditions with high pollen and the correct winds and the correct amount of rain kind of stir up this perfect, you know, if you will allow me a one pun, storm, um, <laughs> where there's just these particular pollen sizes pollen size in the air that can devastatingly trigger people's asthma and um and in some situations people have never had asthma before mm. so i think that one of the things that i i mean i've got mild asthma and i'm always a bit scared about thunderstorm asthma so i use the melbourne pollen app which is this beautiful pollen app designed by melbourne uni which can tell you about the um the pollen warning for the day in the next couple of days, but it also does give you push notifications about high thunderstorm asthma risk days, which is excellent because when there is a high thunderstorm risk day and you are at risk, you do have asthma, um, or, you, you know, you've experienced thunderstorm asthma before, just a couple of things you should be doing, carrying your, your preventer, that's the, um, the Ventolin or Salbutamol, uh, making sure that you're not out playing in the, in the grass as some of my patients have been doing, um, and making sure that you're reading up on your act- asthma action plan um, yeah. and always bringing a spacer. Which, yeah. which uh one presenter in this uh studio does not do. Who could that be? Oh, I don't know. Mm, <laughs> it's <a>
1: mystery.
0: <laughs> it's um sorry Dr. Shan were you about to say something?
1: No, no, no. it's. uh, I'm I'm just uh, so grateful to give this advice. I'd uh, being in Sydney, I'd forgotten my my woes about the worries about thunderstorm asthma. Good Mm. reminder. I'm going to take my preventer now, actually, before (laughs) I go. It's. uh,
0: Where are we at with um, dealing with asthma in more general terms? Yeah, it's obviously really prevalent in the community, right? And at its worst, it kills people. Yes. Um. So it's not something to be taken lightly. Where are we at though with development of treatment? We've come really, really, really far. So,
2: I think there's a lot of um, a lot of a lot of respect for the people who are designing these medications and these drugs. But you know, I guess it kind of goes in that stepwise fashion, as most of our treatments do. There's the, the just the the Ventolin, which is your everyday reliever when you do have uh, symptoms. You know, that's the thing that you take a puff from, hopefully from mm. your spacer. Then it goes up to the preventer, which is often a steroid-based treatment. Which For people who have more frequent exacerbations of their asthma, they're given a uh, preventer to prevent you needing to come to hospital, prevent you needing from more serious medications. Mm. And then there are these incredible um, what we might talk about later in the show um, things called monoclonal antibody drug treatments and a variety of other medications which can be used to dampen down your immune response and dampen down the way that asthma works to prevent you from having those exacerbations Mm. so from I mean I wasn't practicing 20 years ago but from what I've been told 20 years ago to now we're getting much less severe and much less frequent exacerbations of asthma Wow! Okay. so the treatment is clearly
0: working that's positive and encouraging. Mm. But, yeah, to all those people dealing with it, and their families. And their families. And, and it, it's, it can be very, very scary and very, very, um, uh, like, severe when it does happen. Yeah. Yeah. Regretfully, I've got very first-hand experience mm. of that very scenario. So take care out there, folks. Um, look, we've got a full show, as we, we do. always do, I not we? Okay. Working backwards at the tail end with Pop Goes Your Health. Going to be taking a look at something that goes. <laughs> I can't believe it It's like bee therapy, honey and bee therapy, more, more particularly known as apitherapy. Mm. And uh, that caught my attention, and uh, I went digging on, on this particular alternative medicine. For Pop Goes Your Health, um, and actually bumped into something very curious that I'll be keen to uh, run you by about you know, some actual science, but <laughs> we'll see how we go there. Um, before we get to that, uh, Dr. Neer, you're going to be talking to us about RSV. Yes, and some, um, some new
2: medication, as I said before, a monoclonal antibody, which will be used to try and prevent RSV, which is something that we've never had before. Nice very, one. very exciting. Nice one.
0: And Dr. Dilemma. Mm. We, we've got a guest got, actually in the studio. a
3: real-life guest this morning. I'm very, very excited.
0: <laughs> Our um, first for a million years. For a long years. time. Yeah.
3: Uh, we've got endocrinologist, uh, associate professor John Wentworth, who's joining us in the studio to discuss an, a really exciting project that he's been leading that's allowing type 1 diabetes screening for individuals who are at higher risk of developing type 1 diabetes um, to allow them to screen for the illness from from the comfort of their own homes. And really quite incredible. So, yeah, well, that'll be coming up. Soon, very excited to chat to
1: Professor
0: Wentworth. Yeah, looking forward to that very much.
1: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au
3: love to introduce our special guest in the studio this morning it's associate professor john wentworth who is an endocrinologist at the royal melbourne hospital and a senior research officer at the walter and eliza hall institute and the australian new zealand director of multiple research networks including type 1 screen the australian type 1 diabetes immunotherapy collaborative and type 1 diabetes trial net Dr Wentworth is joining us in the studio this morning. We're very excited to have him here. Good morning, Dr Wentworth, and welcome to radiotherapy.
4: Thanks so much. It's great to be here.
3: Perhaps we should first of all touch upon the basics. Um, Can you just touch on the differences between what is type 1 diabetes and what is type 2 diabetes? And and how are they different and why is it important that we we have a distinction there?
4: Yeah, look... So type 1 diabetes was the diabetes we sort of thought we had at the turn of last century in the 1900s, and and it was the disease that predominantly affected children. It caused the symptoms of diabetes, which are essentially being thirsty and going to the toilet to pass urine a lot, and it was invariably fatal. And since um, those early recognitions, um, people then appreciated that actually some forms of diabetes... Well, they appreciated, sorry, that diabetes was... ..the symptoms were caused by high blood sugar levels. They learned how to measure sugar and they realised that some people had high sugars and they didn't die quickly and they were quite older, a lot older. And in those situations, mm-hmm. uh, often obesity and things that put stress on... The pancreas, which produces insulin, um, were the things that were associated with it. And so we had two types of diabetes in the, I guess, in the 50s and 60s. Um, type 1 was um, pretty quickly realized to be a problem of the immune system attacking the pancreas, causing the deficiency in insulin, high glucose levels and the symptoms. Type 2 diabetes was more appreciated again as a I guess a problem with the pancreas, but the pancreas wasn't completely ruined. People could get by quite well um, and indeed if they could lose some weight, if they could um, get a bit off their midriff in particular, um, take the load off the pancreas, then that would be quite an effective treatment for them. So type 2 does not have much of an immune, if any, uh, immune basis. Type 1 diabetes has the um, is caused by the immune attack on the pancreas and much more likely to affect younger children and, and be much trickier to manage because have to use insulin from diagnosis mm. and that's not easy.
3: Yeah. So can you tell us about type 1 screen, this new, um, this new screening test that allows families of, of you know, people with type 1 diabetes to, to test if they're at higher risk, is that right?
4: That's right. Um, so actually for nearly 40 years we've known how to predict which children are going to get type 1 diabetes and we do that by measuring things called antibodies which are a measure or a marker of the immune system attacking the pancreas. And over the years, we've developed better tests for antibodies. They're not easy to measure, um, partly because most normal people also have them to a lower degree and we need to work out where we set the thresholds for various tests and we need to develop tests that are really very, very accurate if we're screening for a low prevalence condition. Uh, So... Type 1 screen um, sprung up in 2019 and um, its mission was to help people who have a family history of type 1 diabetes screen their kids. And if their kids were positive, we, we often find kids are positive many, many years before they need insulin. And we can then develop ways to really keep an eye on them, prevent them getting really sick when they're diagnosed. That's that's a big problem. Uh, and also, very excitingly, get them involved in immune therapy trials and, and to actually bring on the new treatments that are about to come so that we can actually delay the need to use insulin and actually ultimately prevent this disease. Mm. Mm. Uh, and, and I guess the real excitement about, um, about type 1 screen at the moment is that we've had access to a really uh, innovative test that means that we can now mail blood spot cards and finger-pricker devices out to mm. families they can put the telly on, distract the child, get a finger prick sample, drop it onto a card and mail it back to us and we can tell them if they've got antibodies or not. About one in 20 family members, so if you've got a first degree relative with type 1 diabetes, you're going to have one or more antibodies uh, and depending on other elements will depend on what your ultimate risk of mm-hmm. disease is. So mm. it's relatively common in families. Um, we do need to ultimately screen the general population to have the, the widest impact. But we're starting with families for now. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Dr Sharma. Professor, uh, you've mentioned that uh, we've known for decades uh, that we can predict who's going to have uh, diabetes type one through ge- uh, because of the genetics. Why is it that these breakthroughs are only occurring in 2019? Like what were the barriers and, and what, what were we able to surmount amount to be able to finally make these tests now? despite the fact that we've been able to predict these things on a theoretical level for decades?
4: Uh, It all comes down to community and professional appetite. And Mm. uh, we uh, sail against some pretty strong headwinds, both from our Mm. colleagues and also um, from, I guess, um, people who look at population health and they say, look, um, you know, this doesn't meet the criteria for a population-wide screening test, for instance, because you don't have a treatment that's available, uh, and it's not. We don't think that it's really worthwhile telling someone they're going to get a disease and protecting them from getting really sick when they get diagnosed, because the downside of that is that they're living with this fear of disease for many years before it happens. So, yeah. I guess there's an economic argument to say, look, you know, the government's not interested. Um, this is not something we we can justify at the moment. Obviously, we're trying to change that by developing treatments that will make it really mm. compelling. Um, um, we we get a lot of pushback from our colleagues as well and and it's understandable because um, it's really difficult to have a conversation with a family whose five-year-old is just screened to be high risk of type 1 diabetes Mm -hmm. and particularly when you don't have anything other than reassuring well, not even reassuring words just words to say, well, look, this is what it means and this is what, what we need to do from here uh, and so, you know, I guess those of us, you know, my professional colleagues outside the bubble that we work in sometimes get quite annoyed having to deal with um, the, the problem of people testing positive either in our programs or in other programs. And, uh, and again, we're very mindful of that and we're setting up, um, you know, increased um, pathways where we can really provide people much more hope and I would hope much better care than they could get in the community in these conditions. So um, I um, it's it's difficult. I think the other thing that's worth mentioning is that we've used insulin to treat type 1 diabetes for more than a century now that the the 100 year anniversary was last year. And obviously that was a transform transformational breakthrough. Um, the discovery of insulin and the fact that young children with diabetes no longer died. And that therapy has persisted ever since and, um, and and we've become better at it and there are a, a large um, business interests, um, uh, commercial interests in, in making insulin and all the devices that go with it and, of course, all of my colleagues are very comfortable with insulin and it's very difficult to change a century-old treatment paradigm and so that's the other problem that we have. Mm. Uh, and, um, again, it's our job to... Show people there's a better way, and um, while it's still a little bit difficult um, to, to make that case at the moment, we know we can get there mm. if we can get the you know get enough uh, of, of the clinical trial work done, and that's the great tension. Uh, we need to screen to get the job done to find the prevention therapies, mm. and we, we 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 need to screen to justify screening. In other words, and mm. it's it's a bit of a chicken and egg problem. Mm. Dr Sharma? It's, it's
1: pretty shocking to hear you describe actually so candidly uh, all the factors uh, against <laughs> the development of these tests actually. Uh, and yet to me as a, as a you know, primary care uh, doctor, the benefits would be so obvious because the alternative to discovering, to, to diagnosing it quote-unquote you know, too early when you can't do anything about it is the fact that we often diagnose kids too late when mm. they are decompensating, when they're in a type 1 diabetes Crisis. Um, so uh, perhaps you know, for the for the benefit of everyone listening, include perhaps some of those people who who pose resistance uh, to, to this uh, diagnostic tool. Can you tell us a bit about what what the other benefits might be of of diagnosing this earlier than um, you know it actually starting to cause problems?
4: Yeah. Look, I mean, I, I haven't talked ourselves up enough. So we we've <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> right, we, <laughs> we'll we've recently published our experience of screening 17,000 kids since 2005, not using this blood spot assay, but using a formal venous collection in the community. And that uh, usually you would expect one in three kids to be in a crisis when they're diagnosed, many needing intensive care, some unfortunately dying, not mm. many, but it, it can be associated, if you get it too late, your child will not survive it. Um, we showed that we could drop that to less than one in twenty. So instead of one in three, one, yeah. one in twenty kids getting screened of these seventeen thousand kids all across Australia, um, were not. They didn't have to set foot in a hospital to start insulin. Mm. And I guess uh, you know the, the 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 argument that we put out there is that this provides a soft landing. Now <coughs> I, I don't deny for a moment. That hearing that your five-year-old child has a high risk of type one diabetes is not confronting mm-hmm. and and really stressful. Mm. Uh, the, you know our ev- our anecdotal experience and the research evidence suggests that that dies down pretty quickly, and then you can actually take your time to plan for what you need to do. Treating type one diabetes is really tricky. You've got to learn how to use insulin, which is not a safe drug to use if you're not equipped with the information, mm. how to use it, because if you give too much, sugar levels go low and you can end up in a coma yourself, um, and, and that's difficult. Um, you, you need to learn how to change your diet. You need to learn how to monitor your glucose. Um, thankfully, we now have um, these continuous sensors funded by the government which are mm. making a massive difference. And and you need to learn how to get on with your life without having diabetes being be a priority or the number one thing you're thinking about so that you don't miss school, you don't miss sporting events, uh, and that you can just keep going. And again, this soft landing is the thing that we can offer with screening. As I say, at the moment, we really can only cope with screening family members, but we are working really hard uh, to get resource to be able to screen absolutely every child in the nation.
2: In my, I mean, in my admittedly relatively short career, it is, I've treated a few of these you know, diabetic ketoacidosis, which is the... the um, I guess the catastrophic event of type 1 diabetes and it is scary for the doctors, it's scary for the for the patients, it's scary for the families. It is an awful, awful thing to go through and some of these children do become very, very unwell. I guess, you know, you've described type 1 diabetes as this autoimmune condition. Um, it's not the first autoimmune condition that we've come up across and we've got, you know, lots of other medications that we're using for um, autoimmune conditions. Is this... Um, is this the plan for type 1 diabetes? Are we going to try and tackle it like we tackle many of the other conditions that we've...
4: Yeah, yeah. I mean, our go-to is rheumatoid arthritis or juvenile arthritis, mm. which is, uh, for, for many of you listeners will know, it's a, it's a sort of this sudden onset swelling of the small joints of the hands and feet in particular, uh, and it's treated with various immunotherapies. Mm. I mean, I might just throw in there that the other headwind we face at the moment is that Um, We we know we have drugs available that are probably going to work, but we don't have any pharmaceutical industry colleagues or or partners who want to put their drug through the test. Mm. They've got a nice market in other conditions like arthritis. They don't want to give their drug a bad name. Giving it to children and having maybe some adverse effects mm. or, or other problems, and they don't want to invest what's usually about a billion dollars to mm-hmm. develop mm. a drug through clinical trials to get it into practice. So we don't have, even though we have drugs on the shelf that we can take off the shelf and and use to treat people, um, we don't have an industry wanting to do that at the moment, mm. and and we're really hoping that's going to change soon. There's a very um, there's a very exciting. Um, A very exciting day is coming up on the 17th of November. Um, We were involved in a study that we reported in 2019 using an an antibody, a Mm. a, a monoclonal antibody called teplizumab. And we used it to treat children and young adults who were on the cusp of needing to use insulin. They had about two years to go and they were either randomly assigned a a placebo or this drug and those who received the drug spent an extra two years off insulin. Oh, my and on the strength of that evidence, which took more than 12 years to mm. accrue, um, we uh, hope that the US FDA will approve this drug as a prevention therapy for type 1 diabetes. Mm. Now, we don't think it's the best therapy. We think we'll be able to do a lot better. Mm. But it will be a really important step in terms of mm. changing the paradigm and get people thinking a bit differently. And that's, the, that, that's happening on Thursday next week in wow. the US.
2: And and just two years is massive. If you know that you're going to need insulin and need to become more educated in it, two years of a of a heads up is incredible for families. It's it's quite heartbreaking seeing some of the the trials and tribulations families go through, having to say, "Oh, your child's got diabetes. They need insulin right now. Here you go. Mm. Have fun."
4: Right now and every day. And, and I think you know, particularly you know, I guess the the, the, the peak age is a, is Perry. Um, peri-adolescence, mm. so around 10 to 13. But if you can get someone through their adolescence without needing to use insulin, for instance, that would be game-changing as well. So, yeah, I think, you know, I, I'm quite excited. I, I really honestly believe that in my professional lifetime, and there's only a couple of decades left now <laughs> um, that we will have um, prevention therapies, or at least immunotherapy, as part of the mix. And, mm. and that's what we're working hard to do with a bunch of other people around Australia and, and in fact, around the world.
3: Fantastic. Um, I know we hear about, you know, this is a screening test at this point. It's not a diagnostic test. Um, but what, what are the kind of... Do we see false positives or false negatives? How reliable is this screening test?
4: We well, think? We're, we're learning. Yes. Um, the problem we see at the moment... Uh, is that it's probably overcalling, so there are a few false positives in it. And we're we're sort of working through that. Um, We've only had the test here up and running for a year, and and we're the first actually in the Southern Hemisphere to be doing it, and uh, one of only a few places in the world doing Mm. it. So there's a lot to learn, and in fact no-one yet has nailed it. But um, our approach at the moment is very much one of this is a screening test. So if you screen positive, like you know if you have your bowel cancer test and you screen positive that's not doesn't say you've got bowel cancer mm-hmm. um, it just tells you that you should then get the proper test and the proper test is having a formal blood draw mm-hmm. having a serum collected from that and having that put through the standard assays to, to look for the antibodies so our experience is that we're going to pick most positives mm-hmm. uh, and we're going to overcall a few and that's very important when we pick up the phone and talk to people mm-hmm. um, who screen positive and that's the other important thing of what we do we you know, the last thing you want to do is send someone an email or a letter saying, "Oh, you screened positive. There you go," because um, you know it's it's confronting for one, but also for two. No one knows. No one but those of us in the bubble actually know what it means. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of nuance to it, and and obviously, you know, we need to increase general medical um, practitioner knowledge of this issue. But it's very new, and we we need to learn a bit more first before we start saying, you know, how we think it should be done.
3: Mm-hmm that's quite remarkable yeah um, yes yeah, um so at this stage if you test um Positive on the on the screening test. What what happens? What what happens next? What are the
4: next steps? You'll get a phone call from me at the moment. Um, yeah. Hopefully there'll be other voices on the phone soon. We're, we're trying to really ramp up. That's the big problem I've got it's I, I'm having. I'm struggling to keep on top of it all. But um, you'll get a phone call from me and we'll talk through it. Mm. And um, you know those phone calls can be pretty quick. Some people go, oh yeah yeah okay you know do this. Others you know we're having multiple phone calls at different times with different family members to really work through it. But. The next thing you've got to do is get a formal test, and then if you do, if we confirm you've got antibodies, there's there's a bit of, there's a few um, there's a few things to bear in mind. So we test for four different antibodies, and generally speaking, if you have one out of the four, your lifetime risk is pretty low; it's about 10%. Um, whereas if you screen for two or more, that risk goes up above 70%. And so, you know, and it depends a bit on your age as well and also what your glucose levels are. So we need to do a little bit more testing to get a picture as to what that risk is and then have a discussion about what we want to do about it. And generally speaking, we will keep an eye on people with usually 6 or 12 monthly testing Mm -hmm. and, uh, very importantly, tell them what we know is around in Australia to prevent the condition. And Mm -hmm. at the moment, we don't have any prevention trials operating we've just closed off the last few that we were doing COVID sort of set us back a bit but next year we're going to have other things on so um, you know that that's the other key thing is we make sure people know that uh, if there's something around that they have a look at it and think about whether they want to join yeah
3: it's very exciting yeah fantastic thank you so much Dr. Wentworth, unfortunately, I think we're running quickly out of time. But thanks for bringing us up to speed on these incredible developments in the type 1 diabetes community. It's um, it's really exciting to, to, to think that um, there's some, oh. some hope out there. Yeah, it brings a lot of optimism yeah. to, a, to a condition. So well, thanks, thanks very much for having
2: me. Potentially revolutionary. Mm. Mm.
3: So, Dr. Wentworth, just before you, you scoot off, if someone's listening today who has a family member as type 1 diabetes or they know someone who does mm-hmm. and they're interested in getting involved in accessing this screening, how how where, where should they go? How should they
4: go, find that? Go to Google. And <laughs> we, we are allowed to uh, product yeah, name yep. here. Yeah, okay, good. Um, and, and type in all one word, type one screen with the number one. Um, you could probably put it all in one word as well, one O-N-E, but type one, number one screen, mm-hmm. and, and, and you'll find us. where the top hit. Fantastic. Oh,
3: that's brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Radiotherapy, Dr Wentworth. We'll be following your, your work and all the developments closely. Thanks so much.
4: This is a podcast from
1: Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how.
0: Doctor Neo, what are you going to tell us about RSV medicine? Yeah, so I've got um, so respiratory syncytial
2: virus, or RSV is a major cause of viral lung infections, particularly in children. Um, many of our listeners will have heard of it, particularly around after this winter, and it would have almost certainly been responsible for their kids' snotty noses or perhaps some more serious infections. In particular, it's a massive cause of this disease, disease we call bronchiolitis in children, and it represents between 50 and 80% of all cases of bronch in a pre-COVID world. So bronchiolitis is this very common chest infection typically found in babies less than 12 months of age and it causes them to be a bit miserable, have some difficulty breathing and they might not be able to eat or drink properly. It also represents a major drain on our healthcare system with 2-3% to of children requiring inpatient hospital care and 20% requiring some form of outpatient care. And that's not 2 to 3% of children who get the virus. That's 2 to 3% of all children. Wow. And the kicker is that we currently have no medication to treat bronch. You know, we babies are admitted to hospital with bronch. We typically support their nutrition and their fluids. Um, sometimes that's just by making sure that they get enough through a bottle. Sometimes we put a nasogastric tube down. Sometimes we put a little drip into their hand. Um, and supporting their breathing and waiting for them to get better. Basically, it's just a time will tell. But hmm. what if we had a way of preventing RSV infections, I hear you say? Well, very good question. <laughs> uh, so, a new medication might have the answer. It's called, now, it's a monoclonal antibody. And if anyone knows anything about monoclonal antibodies, is that they all have uh, names that you cannot pronounce. Uh, <laughs> Professor Wentworth did a very good job of his one. And I'm going to, I'm going to destroy, I'm going to. Screw up this one very, very badly, but it's nirsevimab. Don't write in. Um, <laughs> is essentially a protein that mimics our natural antibodies. It's currently in the process of being submitted and reviewed by the Australian Therapeutic Goods Administration, which is the body that reviews um, and approves medications. But nirsevimab, although not a true immunisation, is designed to act almost like a vaccine for RSV.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> So, a single intramuscular injection before the start of RSV season for babies.
3: When is RSV season? That's a
2: really good question. <laughs> uh, so, typically around winter. Yes. So we'll get it, um, you know, early spring,
4: mm-hmm.
2: um, and just a little injection like a vaccine. Um, and the trial that uh, is the phase three trial that's published a lot of this data uh, was typically giving it to around two and a half month olds, but it can be a bit younger and can be a bit older. So this randomized controlled trial, you know, this a trial where we get have a control group of people who don't get um, the medication, to get a placebo, and a group where we get the injection. Indicated that babies were significantly less likely to require medical attention for RSV associated uh, respiratory tract infections when compared to the placebo group. Fantastic. So for every thousand infants who received the injection. It prevents 55.8 of them requiring medical attention and 17.7 of them requiring an inpatient admission, which is just huge numbers. Mm. Um, And it actually showed that protective levels of this drug would last around 150 days. uh, So that would get them through the entirety of the RSV um, season. It should be noted that this is just a one-off injection it wasn't repeated in these um, in these babies in this study, and the study did indicate that a number of the infants who received the injection actually developed anti-drug antibodies, which means that um, the immune system was recognizing that this was a bit of a funny thing in the in the system and was producing antibodies to try and fight this. Hmm. Um, so. It may impact the ability to receive a second dose safely, but further studies are currently underway with this same cohort of kids receiving the second dose. Mm -hmm. Um, And what's interesting is we actually do have a similar injection to this already. It's another monoclonal antibody. Don't write in. It's (laughs) pelivizumab.
3: What was that? Say that Uh,
2: again. (laughs) Pelivizumab. Getting worse, can I say it? Five times very quickly, uh, <laughs> um, And we actually use that right here in Melbourne for some very vulnerable children. It's for babies who mainly have things like congenital heart disease, um, who are really, really... If they get RSV, they can get really, really sick and potentially die. Um, and it's, it's being used for this cohort, and it's working really well for them. Um, and all indications are in the laboratory studies comparing map and nasevumab uh, against one another, that the nasevumab is actually um, – uh, has the potential to be better. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's uh, my update on uh, RSV Mabs. Dr. Sharma.
1: I mean, so many things to talk about. Firstly, just interestingly uh – just saying the words RSV uh, a few years ago would have meant nothing to most people, <laughs> and yet you know, because of the increased awareness of respiratory viruses, mm-hmm. so many people just kind of know by name. Uh, the thing that interests me about uh, this is the fact that although maybe people can uh, develop antibodies to the drug, it, it really only tends to... Be, it, it, I guess bronchiolitis and RSV really only tends to do its most damage at those very younger years. So mm-hmm. hopefully right. uh, even a season or two we might mm-hmm. be able to get up on. Dr. Neo, do we know if we can... Both these medications that you've mentioned, if we do get antibodies developed one, is there potential maybe to give you know, the other one the yeah. after potentially?
2: So, I mean, map is the only one that's currently being reviewed for term um, and previously well infants, and um, Pelavizumab is a uh, one that's being used for infants who have, have higher risk factors. But there is no, I, I guess there's no, there's no reason why you couldn't. I think it would be, it would require a couple more trials. Um, but that's a really good thought. And what as it, what Doctor Sham was saying is correct. With bronchiolitis, is only we only kind of refer to it twelve months or less. Um, as in, as in for, for a child. For months. a child, yeah. Yes. So it's it's, only it's a very, diagnosed in twelve months. Yes. Or less. So yes. it's a very distinct age group that can get but this get this, condition. this condition, and it's. Um, and it's the reason why this is such an important finding.
3: Is there a catch? Is this medicine um, uh, any side effects or um, a safety profile? Yeah. Um, so the, uh, why, um Any any roadblocks that might stop it from being rolled out from so this from this trial so far?
2: From this trial, it was actually it showed a pretty incredibly safety profile. You know, the uh, adverse effects for the placebo group versus the um, niservimab group was. Actually pretty similar, meaning that um, there's nothing that's jumping out at us that it's a potentially dangerous drug to give. Great. Yeah. Um, And I guess the big thing is... This is not a, a lifelong fix, and this is not a, it's kind of a almost a band aid to get you through that first 12 months. Uh, and it would be interesting to see how these kids develop with their RSV infections uh, post. You know, we're seeing a lot of quite severe infections in the older age groups that we wouldn't be seeing previously at the moment because these kids aren't being exposed to the same virus as they were during COVID. So it's, it's all a little bit of a, um, uh, a little bit gray at the moment so it'll be interesting to see how how this develops but I'm I'm personally quite
1: quite mm. optimistic
3: I'm excited this rsc is a it's a huge uh, portion of the you know presentations to the mm. you know, children's emergency department a, um gp visits it must be um a a, a a big factor um particularly through the winter months so for a treatment for the first time that could that could really um help this 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 big problem could mm. be quite yeah very exciting
0: uh, Dr. Sharma.
1: Yeah, what I'm finding interesting about this is uh, how, uh, going back to what the Professor Wentworth said about the type one diabetes tests and some of the headwind mm-hmm. that he was uh, yeah. uh, that he was um, uh, encountering with his uh, type one diabetes tests. Firstly, on a very simplistic level, I think before I had this conversation uh, with him just now, um, you know, I, I think we all have this sense of yeah, you know, when it comes to the kids, you know, we'll, we'll kind of do anything uh, to, to help them. And yet I think he, he made the case so well that uh, when when you know, with type 1 diabetes, when you don't really know what to do with the test result, and, mm. you know, what do I do with this now? People are in a very uncomfortable uh, position. It's based so much so that the development of these technologies doesn't even go ahead. Compared to something like RSV, you can really point to the benefits really quite directly. Mm. You know, hey, you, you, did you hear about, you know, you know, uh, your your friend's child who got really really sick mm. with this. Yeah, we can prevent this now, mm. and it's very likely going to happen to your child within the next three months, six months, twelve months. Take this. I think we'll get massive massive uptake. But it's fascinating hearing of these two incredible advances that we're hearing about today uh, on radiotherapy, and yet to one we can have actually an incredible amount of resistance. On the other, hand, I think it's very likely these these antibody treatments we're going to get enormous amount of uptake. Mm.
2: And it's it's also a bit of a testament to the monoclonal antibodies, which um, is not something that we've covered to a large degree on um, at least our segment of radiotherapy before. But it's just these incredible drugs which act like our own uh, immune system. You know, I mean, we've been had millions of years of evolution to fine tune our immune system. Sometimes it goes a bit array. but. Uh, you know, these drugs can kind of mimic what our immune system does and target really, really specifically sections of um, you know viruses and and
0: um, other molecules that that prevent them from working negatively. Hey, guys, time is really fine, but it is, as you've both been saying, it's so good to have two optimistic segments uh, mm. in a row about uh, giving us some hope for something that is clearly very, very prevalent.
1: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au.
0: We're going to take a look at Pop Goes Your Health, a segment where we take a look at something uh, travailing um, alternative medicine or pop culture. And see if there has any scientific basis to uh, to it at all. In this case, uh, today it is apitherapy. Apitherapy, a branch of alternative medicine that uses honeybee products. This includes uh, honey, of course, uh, pollen, um, and uh, jelly, and, and uh, bee venom. Bee venom, and each of these things um, are associated with claims that they do. They have properties that are good for our health in one form or another. Um, it's not new; it's been around for a long, long time, um, and it's uh, not uh, culture specific. It seems that um, bee products have been referenced in many, many um, mm-hmm. uh, cultures um, as as therapy. Um, m- in modern times, uh, there's perhaps we can we can define a, a start with a 1988 article. 1988. Eighteen. 88 article Mm. about a peculiar – and there's a title of it – A Peculiar Connection Between Bee Stings and Rheumatism. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Um, But those were never completely tested in um, trial, so we don't have the signs yet. Then in uh, about 1935, uh, a Hungarian physician coined the term bee venom therapy. And... uh, a, a as did uh, another beekeeper, Charles Moraz, in um, in the twentieth century. Interestingly, for you know, certainly on the trivia front, in nineteen fifty seven, the USSR Ministry of Health sanctioned use of bee venom to treat certain ailments. Actual state sanctioning mm-hmm. of uh, bee venom. Um, perhaps, um, uh, interestingly, in terms of what it. Attempts have been done to use it clinically. Well, once uh, by a doctor, um, um, uh, sorry, uh, Langer. That's it. Dr. Langer actually tried uh, injecting a um, venom um, and uh, to see what that would uh, revolve. And um, and so yes, yeah, so, so it was it was um, uh, delivered uh, via injection. Now where's the science well mm. potentially there might be some science in 2020 over in uh, wa uh, as somebody as part of her phd work actually looked at bee venom and um has has made some claims around honeybee venom um may be rapidly killing aggressive breast uh, breast cancer cells mm. now you know a thing or two about breast cancer guys yeah, it's. I mean, this is not an, a particularly unusual um,
2: situation where we find natural products have a very specific situation where they can be very helpful. For example, foxglove tea and is was used uh, in you know the eighteen hundreds by lots of older English women to cure their swel- swollen legs. Turns out they all just had heart failure, uh, and it's now a very common heart failure drug called digoxin.
3: There, there's certainly some evidence that we, we recommend um, um, in children's health uh, about uh, giving honey for a cough. There's certainly and there's evidence for um, mm. that that help, helpful. It's only um, recommended for kids over the age of one, but um, certainly, yeah, evidence that it is just as good, if not better, than um, some of those those cough medicines that are out there. I think there's some evidence um, for honey and wound healing as well. So, a bit of science behind.
0: Sorry. I think, it. I think it, what we're saying is it's very specific. Conditions and very specific treatments. Yep, yep. So of the all of all our pop goes your health. Maybe that's the one that's closest to having some science. Potentially. Up us leave. Okay. okay. Hey, look, another um, reason to thank the bees. <laughs> <laughs> thank the bees, exactly. Save the bees. Save, Save the, bees. the bees. Save the and bees. And bees. Thank um, look, we've come to time. Big thanks to our special guest, um, Dr. Uh, Associate Professor John Wentworth, talking to us about diabetes. Hi.